try to give you a context to the city of Corinth, to basically the man Paul and possibly the condition of his heart as he faced uh, the indifference of the crowd in Athens and uh, many beatings before that. And uh, we know that it's easy to get discouraged within and uh, there was not only discouragement uh, within that we have to deal with, but then there's always spiritual opposition that's without. And uh, these two things usually work together in tandem to discourage the people of God. And so I'm sure that Paul was feeling discouraged, but we should never uh, mistake discouragement for determination. Right? We can be discouraged, but we must stay determined because the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. And we don't feel that way a lot of times. Uh, we feel uh, like, Lord, where, where hast thou gone? And why hast thou abandoned thy servant? For I alone, Lord, am here left to serve you. And then we have to have the Elijah experience where the Lord basically tunes us up and tells us that, no, you're not the only person left on the world that's serving me. I have many people that serve me. And then, then we have the city of Corinth. So we have the man, Paul, and then we have the mission that he was uh, walking into, which was the city of Corinth. Uh, we know that it was uh, situated uh, at a major strategical place in Greece that basically connected the south of Greece to the north of Greece on a little neck of land that was no more than four or five miles across. And so not only was there south-north commerce and travel, but all the shipping uh, from the Aegean and the Ionian Sea and the Mediterranean Sea uh, often uh, came to Corinth, and what they would do is instead of sailing 200 miles around the southern coast of Greece, uh, they built kind of these marble slabs, and then they would uh, attach ropes to the ships, and then put logs under the ships, and then actually pull them across that neck of land. And so instead of sailing 200 miles, they would just basically get the Roman slaves uh, to basically pull the ships across from one side to another. So uh, it was a commercial center because uh, it had two harbors on either side and it was a, uh, an incredible place for business to boom. Now, as well, um, Corinth, being filled with uh, drunk sailors and merchants and everything else, had a Remarkable reputation for loose living and especially sexual immorality. And in classical Greek, to act like a Corinthian meant to practice fornication and a Corinthian companion meant to, a prostitute, not high praise. And on top of that, if you go to Corinth, which I've had the pleasure of being at, uh, you can look at the mountain overlooking the city and on top the ancient ruins of the Temple of Aphrodite. And uh, that was the goddess of love. I use the word love uh, facetiously. It was the god of basically hedonistic lust. And every night, a thousand temple prostitutes would come down from the temple and ply their trade in the city of Corinth. And then the last thing we noted was, of course, the, uh, the Greeks uh, loved uh, philosophy and wisdom. And... Um, they were caught up in man's wisdom and looking to all types of Greek deities and gods. And, uh, and uh, so we, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, 
which basically uh, read, we read there that Paul's strategy that when he went to Corinth was basically to rely upon the simple wisdom of God. And so therefore he preached the cross and said there is the wisdom of God displayed, that God came down and died for man on that cross so that we might become uh, in Christ Jesus, we might have forgiveness, we might have wisdom, we might have all the blessings of God. And we read in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, uh, what Paul said, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That was Paul's strategy coming into Corinth. So that was the context. So let's get into the chapter this week. Because last week I basically preached on verse 1. And Paul came to Corinth. So this week we're going to knock off the whole chapter. I wouldn't believe that if I were you, but that's my goal. So chapter 18 of the book of Acts, if you have your Bibles, read with me there. After these things, verse 1, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, a 53-mile walk. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the Roman emperor, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So I'd like to look at a few things of how God encouraged the Apostle Paul as he went into this city, this city of debauchery, this love of man's wisdom, of how the Lord encouraged the Apostle Paul. And the first thing that God did is he sent him some friends. He sent him some fellow laborers by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, his ministry got launched in Corinth um, by having some important friends. And uh, if you read through the uh, Pauline letters, you'll know that this meeting of uh, Priscilla and Aquila began one of the most important friendships that Paul had in his life. And they are mentioned in the book of Acts in chapter 18 three times. And they are mentioned another three times in the New Testament for a total of six. Now, if you read Romans 16, 3 and 4, it gives us a little bit of insight into the friendship and fellowship that Paul had with Priscilla and Aquila. Because here's what he wrote to the Romans. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So you can see that uh, Priscilla and Aquila were people that were committed to the ministry that God had given the Apostle Paul. And so much so that they risked their very lives 
for the sake of the gospel. Now, the end of this chapter, chapter 18, is going to look at the depth of their walk because it's going to show us the wisdom and the knowledge that they had when they took aside a guy by the name of Apollos who was mighty in the scriptures and they explained to him more clearly the way of Christ. And so uh, they were very, very, what you would call pillars in the Corinthian church. Now our text tells us they were Jewish They had been expelled from their home in Rome by the Emperor Claudius and that they had the same business as the Apostle Paul. They were tent makers. Now we know that Paul was a rabbi and every rabbi was was encouraged to have a trade. And so Paul's trade was tent making. Now were they Christians when they met Paul or did Paul lead them to Christ? I think they were Christians because I know there was a church established in Rome where they came from, and it's quite possible they came to faith there and moved to Corinth because of the emperor's decree. Now, when I read this, it seems to me that this was God's gift to Paul. He was discouraged. Uh, He had a big task in front of him, and he meets a couple who have the same occupation in the same city, expelled just by chance from Rome by the emperor, and they have the same heart for ministry. Now, you know, God is God. God could do anything that he wants to show Paul and the people of Corinth that he loves them and wants them to come to a saving knowledge of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ But do you notice that God did not send signs and miracles? He could have, but as I read the story uh, in chapter 18, I don't read of any miracle performed in the chapter. Uh, God often did perform great miracles through the Apostle Paul as he preached the gospel to different cities, but he didn't do it here in Corinth. God worked another way, and that is is that he sent some friends to encourage him in the work. Now, can't you picture, as Paul comes into Corinth, uh, that he meets this couple, they begin to labor together, making tents side by side, and as they are in this tent-making business, can you imagine the conversation that you would have with the Apostle Paul all day long? the richness of Paul's knowledge, the passion of his heart, the stirring that would be in their spirits as they see and hear this man's testimony and what God has called him to do. And I think as they worked and they prayed and they planned uh, together, they were stirred up to take this city for Corinth. This was no ordinary friendship. And... uh, Quite frankly, when you think about friendship, there's nothing ordinary about a good friendship. Right? Do you have good friends? I'm not talking about people. You go, yeah, I I know them. They're friendly. I would consider them a friend. But somebody that you would say, they have my heart, and I have theirs, and we are friends. 
You know, friendship is a great gift from God. And the Bible has a lot to say about how to choose friends. If you read the book of Proverbs, it tells you don't go with angry men, lest you learn their ways. But it does say in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. In Proverbs 27, 6, it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Keeping my eye on you, Gerald. (laughs) Yeah, these friends that came to Paul These were the gift of God. They had Paul's heart. They had his ministry. They were there to encourage Paul in the work of the ministry. Uh, What is a true friend? Well, you know what? Uh, I'm sure that if you went home today and took out a, a piece of paper and a pen, probably nobody does that anymore. You opened your computer and opened a document and titled it Friends. Uh, you could probably come up with some really good thoughts about what a friend really is to you. But I would say, for me as a pastor, a good friend is someone that encourages me in the work of the ministry. That's a good friend to me. And I have to thank the Lord for the many friends that Sandy and I have had that have encouraged us in the Lord uh, as we have been in the ministry And I would like to say that all of you have had a part of doing that. So uh, thank you for encouraging me and Sandy. Thank you for coming up to me uh, on Sundays and saying, Pastor Dale, we're praying for you. You don't know how much that means to me and how that encourages my heart because uh, I need prayer. And Gerald, you don't have to say anything. (laughs) I'm way ahead of you. Friends, you choose the wrong friends, you got big problems. You choose the right friends, you'll have encouragement and fellowship all through your life. I'd like to talk to you a little bit this morning about Aquila and Priscilla. I'd like to talk to you about their teamwork together. You know, some couples know how to make the most of life. They, they complement each other. They capitalize on each other's strengths. They form an effective team. And Aquila and Priscilla were such a couple. Do you know the Bible never mentions them separately, but always together? And in marriage and in ministry, they were a team. They worked in concert, and they were committed to one goal in their marriage. I mean, I'm sure there were many goals in their marriages, but the thing that we see in Scripture is that their lives were committed to making an eternal difference in people's lives. And that is a very high goal for a marriage. I think there is some excellent counsel here for those who are thinking They would like to get married someday. Those who are engaged to be married and those who are already married. So I think it's good for all of us. 
When you think about marriage, what are your goals? Are you going to be a team for Christ in life? Um, Are you going to say the goal of our marriage is to put Christ at the center and that together we are going to serve him in marriage and in ministry together? Are you looking for someone that is saying, you know, the goal for me of what I'm looking for in a prospective partner is can we minister together for the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, My personal opinion is that anything less than that is setting the bar way too low and you're really looking at the the, the wrong criteria. Now, you don't have to say that that is your goal, but I do think that if you say that that is a non-negotiable, you will find a depth and enjoyment in your marriage at a level that you would never otherwise experience together. Perhaps you should ask, well, what is it that I am seeking in my marriage? I hope that I could encourage you today that it would be an Aquila and Priscilla model. And if you are married, and many of you are, whatever you can do to lift up the hands of others as they minister, do it together. You will be blessed for it. There will be a richness that comes into your marriage and your relationship as you put Christ at the center and you seek to lift others up and make a difference in their lives for eternity. It's a great goal, and it's a great pursuit. So, as Paul uh, supplied for the work of the ministry through the work uh, of being a tent maker, uh, we also read that uh, he made tents by day, and then on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, which was always his... Uh, strategy, and he reasoned with the Jews and preached Christ to them until they kicked him out, and then he went to the Gentiles. So, verse 5, it tells us there that when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, northern Greece, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So now we have more encouragement for the Apostle Paul because there are more people being added to the core team of the ministry. And so uh, when these guys arrive, Paul is able to set aside his tent making, and now he's devoting himself exclusively to preaching. And we know that Paul, or uh, Silas and Timothy, uh, when we read Philippians 4.15, probably brought with them a financial gift from the believers in Macedonia, which enabled him to do ministry uh, without having to... uh, make tents. So Paul would have been encouraged by all these factors, and so with this group around him, uh, Silas, Timothy, uh, Aquila, and Priscilla, uh, he's launching off into basically taking Corinth for Christ. And uh, I'd like to say that um, um, despise not the day of small things. Uh, There are as many a great work that's happened uh, in a home group where uh, you talk to pastors that like 
the ministries have grown and multiplied, and you ask them how they started uh, having a Bible study in a home. Uh, Verse 6, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God and whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord With all his household and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized, the church is beginning to expand. This little nucleus of believers now. So this is the second thing that the Lord does for Paul in encouraging him in the ministry. It's beginning to bear fruit. And bearing fruit in a ministry is a great encouragement. When you see people responding to the Holy Spirit to the word of God, and you see people having this flame fanned into fire, and they're getting passionate for the Lord, and they're telling people about Jesus, and they're excited about coming to church, and there's joy in the house of the Lord. It's exciting to see fruit being born in the work of the ministry. Amen? I am glad to come to Calvary Chapel, Kelowna every Sunday morning and see your smiling faces and hear the joy and the laughter during the coffee break, to see people conversing with one another, loving on one another. I'll tell you, that just blesses my heart. I go, now, Lord, do I have to ruin all of this by getting up and speaking to them? But apparently I do. So, fruit-bearing. Very encouraging when we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives and being added to the church daily, those who should be saved. People come up to me and tell me who they're witnessing to. People have been telling me that they've been leading people to the Lord. I had a brother come up to me this morning, says, Pastor Dale, the Lord's given me another one to go. And I just like, I just go, that's the church in action. You go out, and as you go, you share the gospel. Now, Paul did two things when he left the synagogue (laughs) in Corinth. It says that he shook out his garment in front of them. He shook out his garment. Now, we don't do that today. We don't leave a house where we're like, okay, you don't want, and then we do the shake. Paul did this. Because as Jews, he wanted to tell them that I don't even want a speck of dust from the synagogue that is blaspheming and mocking Christ. I don't even want a speck of your dust to remain on my clothes, much less on my sandals. And this was a dramatic way of expressing his rejection of their rejection. It showed that he abhorred, that he was grieved by their blasphemy. And he didn't want any of it to be upon him. And so symbolically, you shake the dust from your garments, telling them that I don't even want the, the, the dust of your blasphemy and mockery to be upon me. And the second thing, well, the other thing is, is that remember when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples in Luke chapter 9? He said to them, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. 
and whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. The second thing that Paul said is he told them, your blood is on your own heads. Now, any good Jew would immediately realize that Paul is quoting from the prophets. And in particular, he is quoting from Ezekiel chapter 33. And there, the prophet says in verse 1, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. What was Paul saying? He is saying the watchman has a simple task. If you see judgment coming upon a people, you are to blow the trumpet of warning, and you are to tell them that the sword is coming upon them. And if you do that, you have fulfilled your duty. For if they ignore your warning, their blood is upon their own head. But you have done what is required of you because you have told them the truth. But if you see judgment coming, if you see the sword coming, and notice it's the sword of the Lord, it's the judgment of the Lord that's coming in Ezekiel 33. My sword, says the Lord. Not some foreign army, but the sword of the Lord. He says, if you don't warn them about the impending judgment that I'm bringing, their blood will be upon your head because you were not faithful to warn them. And that's what a watchman does. Serious business to be a watchman. Paul tells them, I have been the faithful watchman of Ezekiel 33. I have preached the gospel to you. I have told you the truth, but you have rejected it. And not only that, you have blasphemed it and you have mocked it. Therefore, your blood be upon your own heads. I have been a faithful watchman in declaring to you the sword of judgment that is coming from the Lord upon you if you reject the good news. Well, I think that the application is pretty obvious, isn't it? It's, it's serious, serious business. And I pray that the Lord will make me and make us courageous, faithful watchmen who love the eternal uh, welfare, the eternal souls of people so much that we will faithfully declare to them the truth. Now, 
Secondly, notice how the fruit is beginning to follow the preaching of the gospel. Justice, who lived next door to the synagogue, who was a worshiper of the true God, Paul leaves the synagogue and sets up right next door to the synagogue at Justice's house. And I'm sure the Jews just love that. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, becomes a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ, and him and his whole household are saved, and now the ruler of the synagogue is a follower of Jesus. So you can see that the ministry now is beginning to exponentially explode, and people are responding to the Lord. And seeing a ministry bear fruit is so encouraging to the work of the Lord. Now, God gives Paul a third encouragement. So the first, he gave him friends. Secondly, he gave him fruit. And the third is that he gives him a vision. Look at verses 9 to 11. Uh, Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. Paul gets this vision by night from the Lord, and it says, don't be afraid, but speak and don't keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, this is one of six visions that Paul uh, has that is recorded in the book of Acts. This supernatural vision provided four reasons for him not to give up, but to continue in the work in Corinth. First, God commanded it. Go on and keep speaking. Secondly, God reminded him, I am with you. Thirdly, God promised Paul, no man will attack you in order to harm you. Now, Jesus didn't tell Paul that opponents wouldn't try to stop him, only that they would not be successful in attacking or hurting him. Fourthly, and the final reason, God gave, uh, that, uh, God gave this vision to Paul to keep preaching was that God had many people in this city. So, what does that mean? Well, it means God had many people in the city. And there we have the beautiful balance of God's sovereignty and foreknowledge with human responsibility. You want to argue about it? Go ahead. Be my guest. Just don't talk to me. Because the greatest theologians in the last five or six hundred years have argued this point about sovereignty and free will, and they can't agree. I don't think I'm going to solve it for you. But I know one thing. They both work together, and that's fine by me. And he told Paul, you must preach, but I have many people in the city. Beautiful. So it says in verse 11, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. By the way, I have a little booklet on the book table. It's called uh, Armenianism and Calvinism. And basically the Armenian position is free will. Calvinism is that everything's predestined. And my position is I see both in the Bible. And when I see it in the Bible, I preach it like I believe it. Because I do. And so if you are all confused about that subject, pick up that book and uh, you'll never have another question in your life. (laughs) I know I'm going down a rabbit trail, but 
as I've been a pastor for 30 years now, and, you know, I always find it, it, it is worthy to think about and ponder and talk about because it's just such an incredible truth to try to wrap your mind around. But I often wonder how people get so bent out of shape over this thing and not do the things that are obvious in front of you. Like, really? You want to argue about predestination and free will? Why don't you go out and lead a soul to Christ? I know that's God's will. So Paul was in Corinth a year and a half, and uh, I think that's as long as he was, uh, just about in any city. So here is how his ministry is simply described. He was teaching the word of God among them. Isn't that beautiful? What was Paul doing? He was teaching the word of God among them, and as they responded, he was discipling them, taking them through the word, establishing them in truth, establishing them in grace, establishing them in, the, in sound doctrine, and making disciples. Which is why we simply teach the Bible simply. Because we want to establish people in the whole counsel of God's word, not just the parts that we like. Amen. <laughs> All right, verse 12. Here's another blessing. It's a governmental blessing. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, and by the way, if you go to Corinth, there's a big slab of rock in the ancient city of Corinth that has the word bema still inscribed on it. It is the judgment seat. That's what judgment is, in the bema seat, still there. Interesting. So they brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Now, this wasn't a blessing for sausage guy here. (laughs) But it was for Paul. Sosthenes. Sosthenes, is that right? Exactly. Easy for you to say. But here's another blessing. The Jews wanted to go to the government of the day, and they wanted to outlaw the gospel. And so they take him before a Gentile court, and they ask Gallio, the ruling governor, to make it unlawful to preach the gospel in Corinth. Now, their charge was false. They contended Paul persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. One part of it was true. Paul did seek to persuade men to worship God. But the other part was false, not contrary to the law of Rome. Paul did not seek to start an insurrection or a rebellion against Caesar or against Rome or against the authorities of Corinth. 
He simply sought to preach the gospel, to bring people to faith in Christ, and to disciple them. And this, this sequence of events, they take place when Gallio, who was, interestingly, the brother of Seneca, the philosopher, and he was in power around A.D. 51-52. So we have a date of when Paul actually was in Corinth. But Gallio didn't bite. He simply looked at the Jews and he said, listen, if you are bringing before me a civil matter where someone has broke the law and wicked crimes have been committed, this would be a state matter. But he reasoned that this was simply a religious matter an in-house Jewish fight, and he did not seem it necessary that the state should get involved on such matters. And he drove them, not in a car, he drove them and chased them from the place of justice. Now, you go, well, big deal. Well, it was a big deal because this is a very important judicial decision for the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire. You see, Judaism was recognized and allowed to be practiced under Roman law. Gallio said, I see this Christian sect as a part of Judaism. And as long as Christians were seen as a sect within Judaism, the court refused to hear the case brought before them and against Paul. If they had claimed to be a new and separate religion, they could have easily been outlawed outlawed by the Roman government. In effect, Gallio was saying, I don't understand all your terminology and finer points of theology, and I don't really wish to. Handle the matter yourself, and don't bug me anymore about it. And so this decision proved to be extremely beneficial for the emerging Christian church in the Roman Empire, at least for the next 10 years, because his ruling became a legal precedent used uh, by Paul in Rome. If Gallio had found Paul guilty, every governor of every province where Paul or other Christian missionaries were taking the gospel would have been arrested for simply being Christians and preaching. By not ruling against Paul, the Romans were including Christianity as a sect of Judaism, as one of their regal, uh, legal religions of the Roman Empire. And so, in effect... The Jews' plan backfired because Gallio now helped spread the gospel rather than hinder the gospel. Now, the poor guy that got beat to a pulp, sauce, that guy, he was set upon by the Greeks, by anti-Semitic Jews who beat him in front of the court and Gallio paid no attention to it. So it seems like he was enforcing certain laws, but while other laws were being uh, broken, he paid no attention. But the good news is about Sosthenes is that if you read 1 Corinthians 1.1, it says there, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So yes, he got beat up, but it seems like he became a believer and a follower of Jesus. So it ends with good news. I thought I should throw that in. Right? All right, verses 18 to 23. What time is it there? 
seven minutes. We got seven minutes. So Paul still remained a good while, a year and a half, actually. Don't you like the way the Bible just puts down a sentence and it like a year and a half later? So Paul remained a good while, a year and a half. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He, who did he leave? Paul, uh, Aquila, and Priscilla. He left them in Ephesus. When they asked him to stay longer, a longer time with him, he did not consent, but he took leave of them, saying, If must by all means, um, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. Uh, Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. And so he took a Jewish vow uh, just so that he could basically appear to be a good Jew. And notice when he got to Ephesus, uh, they wanted him to stay longer, but he would not consent. And notice what he said in leaving. I'll come again, God willing. God willing. I think that's really wise counsel for us. God willing, I'll come again. So verse 27, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went back to Antioch. Antioch is his home church. It's the first Gentile church. It was the church that sent Paul out. And now it's two years later, and he has just finished his second missionary journey. And when he had spent some time there, verse 23, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phyra. Gaia? Phrygia? Exactly. Uh, strengthening all the disciples. Uh, look, at, I didn't write this, but I have to pronounce it. You know, I think I'm an okay speaker, but then the Lord just reminds me and says, here, try that out. And then I have the walk of shame as everybody laughs at me. Oh, Dale, that was so funny. You know, you, you can't talk. And I go, yeah, I, thanks, I know. So the vision in the night, the word of the Lord to Paul was completely fulfilled. I know what you're all thinking. Oh, I wish I had a vision in the night from the Lord. Boy, if I had a vision in the night, I'd be solid, man. I would, you know, I'd keep preaching. No, you wouldn't. Because we have a word from the Lord. It's the Bible. And you can read it every day. And you, you can read the same thing that God told Paul. Preach the gospel. Don't be discouraged, and I'm with you always. Well, I need a vision. No, you don't. You don't need a vision. If you get one, come and tell me. I'd be really stoked to hear about it. And I'm not saying that you can't get one. But I am saying that the word of God tells us the same thing that the Lord appeared to Paul and told him to say, look it, keep preaching. Well, that's what Jesus told us. That's the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. I'm not going to leave you. I'll be with you. Matthew 28. And lo, I am with you always till the ends of the earth. Don't get discouraged because you will. But that doesn't mean that I've pulled the, 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 the tent up and I've moved on and you're left behind. We have that encouragement in the word of God. Amen? And then in verse 24 to 28, I just... 
So Priscilla and Aquila are left in Ephesus, and along comes this guy named Apollos. Now, this is really cool. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, Apollos, born at Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? Right, northern Egypt. A very cultured city. One of the biggest libraries of uh, ancient times was in Carthage. Or, no, Alexandria. Yeah. Uh, And listen to it. He was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, and he came to Ephesus. I love the description of this guy. Um, An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. Boy, this guy is something else. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. You know what that means? Literally, he was on fire. (laughs) He was on fire for the Lord. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, now this is the depth of this married couple. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. How much was under the hood of Priscilla and Aquila? These were people who were really, you know, uh, founded in the word of God. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, and he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that, the, that Jesus is the Christ. Now this Apollos, this guy is a gift to the church. Notice that when uh, Aquila and Priscilla heard them, They didn't say, hey, you're not of us. Shut up. You can't say this. They listened to what he was saying, and they took him aside and explained more fully the way of Christ. Now, was Apollos saved? Well, he was mighty in the Scriptures, which means the Scriptures of that day were the Old Testament. Because, remember... There was no New Testament. And when Paul went into the synagogues and preached the gospel, he's preaching the good news from the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament is good news. It's full of good news. It is full of Jesus because Jesus took the disciples on the road to Emmaus and said to them, you guys are so slow of mind and you just don't get it. And he opened the Bible and showed him through all of the scriptures everything concerning himself. What a Bible study, right? And then just before he was ascended, he breathed on the Holy Spirit and opened the word of God to them. So, beautiful. So he was with the baptism of John. Now, John's baptism was one of preparation for the Messiah. It was a Baptism of repentance. And Apollos accepted John the Baptist's message that the Messiah was coming. He maybe even believed that Jesus was the Lamb of God and the Messiah. And he surely expounded with force and persuasion the scriptures that pointed to Jesus. But he didn't 
quite understand the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. And so he was taken aside by Aquila and Priscilla, and they began to talk to him about the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, the day of Pentecost. And we can see that it just made perfect sense to him because it only fired him up greater, and he goes over to Achaia where he begins to refute the Jews with great force and publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So, I'm going to just keep going here and go straight to my conclusion. And don't get too excited, because as any good preacher, I can conclude five times. And now for my fourth conclusion, and this time I really mean it. I love how the Lord worked through so many instruments in this chapter. As Paul came to Corinth, the Lord gave him friendship and fellowship and encouragement through Aquila and Priscilla. Folks, there's nothing like having great friends in the work of the gospel. That's fellowship. Secondly, Paul and Silas came and expanded the core. Thirdly, they brought a financial gift so that he could devote his uh, time fully to preaching the the gospel. Uh, Fourthly, the Lord spoke to him in a vision by night. Fifthly, the government ruled in favor. Sixthly, fruit abounded as he put his hand to the plow. And I would just like to end with a word about uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They are one of the more interesting couples in the New Testament. These colleagues of the Apostle Paul left a legacy of tireless Christian labor, always willing to serve wherever needed. They were and are a wonderful role model for anybody that wants to emulate a mission or a desire in marriage or the person that you want to be married to, who want to use their marriages to make an eternal difference in the world. To me, when you cut away all of the fat of what the world tells us marriage is all about, (gasps) romance. Well, yeah, romance is important. But I would say to you that when you cut everything, that as Christians, the one goal that you should be looking for in your marriage partner is that you want to leave a legacy of tireless Christian labor, of being able to make your lives count together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always willing to serve, being an example, and using your marriage to reach souls for Christ. You know, uh, if you look at the Bible, there are many references to 
uh, Aquila and Priscilla. In Acts 18, we just read, uh, they are ordered by Claudius to leave Rome. That was in A.D. 49. In A.D. 50-51, it tells us in Acts 18, they made tents and ministered with the Apostle Paul. In A.D. 52, Acts 18, 18 and 19, they left Corinth with Paul and they stayed in Ephesus where, among other things, they helped disciple Apollos and sharpen his message. In A.D. 55 and 56, they hosted a church in their home in Ephesus. In A.D. 56 and 57, they have moved back to Rome and they hosted a church in Rome. And then in A.D. 67, they're back in Ephesus again, and this time they are assisting a young Timothy as he's pastoring the church there. What an incredible legacy that this couple leaves. Assisting Paul, assisting Apollos, assisting the saints of God, and then Paul's protege, his disciple, ending up in assisting the young Timothy. In an age when the focus is mostly on what happens between husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla are an example of what can happen through a husband and a wife. And I think their effectiveness together speaks about their relationship with each other. And so, this is... You didn't think you'd see that in uh, Acts 18. But I'll tell you, as I was studying this out, I just go, you know what? This Aquila and Priscilla just blow my minds at how they had committed themselves to serving the Lord together in ministry. I hope that that is a blessing to you and that uh, you take a page from their book and apply it to your lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word today. Just the simple instructions and the principles that we see. And I pray, Lord, for every married couple today that, Lord, uh, it would be our desire to serve you together. And, Lord, just to make a difference in this world, in the souls of people. What a high and lofty goal to have and what a beautiful one. Uh, Lord, may you encourage every couple to sit down and think about that and talk about it and ask what that means and uh, encourage them, Lord, And Father, for every young person here that desires to be uh, uh, joined, uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would seal that to their heart about, Lord, uh, having Christ-centered goals for uh, their marriage partners and the beauty of walking together in it. And so, Lord, uh, seal this word to our heart this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's